Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Tate Nurkin, who is the founder of the OTH Intelligence Group and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Tate, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Um, so, yeah, you've likened China's defense technology strategy to Wayne Gretzky saying that they aren't skating to where the puck is, but where it's going to be. So where is China going? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, uh, great to start with a Wayne Gretzky quote that always sets a good tone for the rest of the conversation, I guess. Um, but yeah, look, China's military modernization is is going through a lot right now. And you know, I, I can think of four priorities that jump to the top of mind. The first being kind of these improving the anti-access area denial capabilities, largely around missiles, uh, but but not exclusively. So we've seen the development of kind of the, the hypersonic missiles and some longer range anti-ship ballistic missiles, um, which were of concern both to the U.S. DOD, but also in the way it's organizing and setting up kind of the strategic support force back at the end of 2015, which is one organization to take care of electronic warfare, counter space, cyber, and, and even some intelligence collection. So, you know, there's a lot of technologies, uh, part of that priority that are trying to get to the next generation of capabilities and where war fighting is going into this multi-domain operations aspect. The second priority is transitioning from a largely military posture for territorial defense to one that's really looking at the maritime domain. Um, and again, the massive shipbuilding campaign that China's undergone there has been pretty impressive. I think one of the largest, if not the largest, shipbuilding, naval shipbuilding campaigns in, in history. And then you've also got the power projection component, which is the third priority, the building of now a second actually the first indigenously designed and built aircraft carrier entered service in December of 2019, overseas bases, sort of a real focus on protecting China's interests abroad. But so all of that is a little bit of exposition, certainly uh, to, to the fourth priority, which is this idea that China is developing a lot of these novel fourth industrial revolution technologies in order to kind of win the race to what here in the U.S. we call cognitive warfare or al- algorithmic warfare. In China, it's frequently called intelligentization of warfare, but really the incorporation of AI and these other enabling fourth IOR techs like unmanned systems and robotics, uh, IoT and 5G, neuro and bioscience. I mean, the list kind of goes on, some advanced sensors and materials, uh, incorporation into the breadth of military capabilities that China wants to deploy. So a lot of the attention goes to drone swarms. Fair enough. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later in the conversation. But it's also injecting different types of AI technologies to in simulation and training to address one of the huge vulnerabilities that China has in terms of operational experience, both in the absolute sense and certainly relative to the United States, which has been at war for a very long time. And in intelligence processing and in all of these other areas where AI technologies can enable really advanced capabilities. So so my perspective is that China is investing in these technologies to get ahead of the United States in this new area of competition, sort of the intelligentization of warfare, while also closing the gap in these more traditional areas of kind of competitions in terms of air and missile defense versus strike and the undersea domain and, and some of the other things we've already talked about. 
it's interesting what you said there about the balance between the more traditional forces and then also bringing in the more cognitive warfare of fourth industrial revolution that you're talking about. From a military standpoint, for me at least, it seems odd. I would, I would like just to get you to comment on this. Do you think it's weird that China is focusing so heavily on AI when it has this large and lower skilled population? You know, you think their comparative advantage is with manufacturing and mass deployment. So why do you think they're already trying to leapfrog ahead in some of these other domains, which are really kind of human labor saving technologies. You know, and it's interesting because uh, China has undertaken some pretty massive organizational reforms since 2015 uh, within the PLA. And one of them was actually to get rid of about 300,000 individuals, uh, personnel from the full strength of the PLA military. So they really have focused on, and this is a hard thing to do, obviously, to to change the human capital makeup of the military. There's been a, a focus on kind of getting rid of this idea that force, particularly in the ground forces, is the priority for the PLA and now trying to integrate and recruit more technically skilled people or at least individuals that can handle the intellectual burden of, you know, kind of modern warfare. But I think some of these investments come because, you know, they see the U.S. investing in these capabilities. And they I think China has a really, uh, the PLA has a really good understanding of the potential of how artificial intelligence in particular, some of these technologies uh, are going to shape the future of, of uh, military operations and military competition. Do you think they really believe in AI and its future? Or do they, you know, is it more like part of the broader political landscape? Hey, we want to use this for political reasons and other reasons. And, you know, military fits into that narrative and it kind of like can roll along with everything else. Yeah, it's it's almost certainly a little a little bit of both. I do think that there's an acknowledgement for the the potential that can be un, that AI can unleash, especially in conjunction with some of these other technologies that are also being developed. But look, China released in, in 2017 this next generation artificial intelligence development plan, which is this very ambitious uh, three phase plan to become the global leader in artificial intelligence by 2030. And it wasn't just about being the global leader in our artificial intelligence for national security by 2030. It was a whole of country, a whole of uh, polity and economy approach. And I think China sees artificial intelligence as being, and, and again, you know, artificial intelligence, we talk about it as it's this one sort of monolithic thing. Clearly it isn't, but it's sort of an easier way to, to talk about it in this setting as being critical, first and foremost, to state security, to keeping the regime in power. And we've already seen deployment of facial recognition software and other AI applications to that end, but also to help further an economic transformation, which will have to happen due to some of the, the interesting and I think ultimately deleterious demographic trends in China. And yes, of course, uh, to, uh, to, to enhance national security. But it really is more than just, uh, again, drone swarms or autonomous weapons that is driving this. It's really a, a recognition at the highest levels of the, central, of the Chinese Communist Party that it needs to be leading this revolution from a lot of different areas and national security is just one of them. So new technologies like artificial intelligence, they often seem to challenge the ways of doing business in, in the past, especially industrial era models. Can you just talk a little bit about how would you compare, contrast the way the defense business itself is being done in the U.S. and China? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, look, I guess I'd start by talking a little bit about what's changing in China, because I do think that things uh, over the last five or six years have begun to change in terms of the 
business practices and, and really what constitutes the defense industrial base in China. Um, because if you go back to kind of the early part of the 2010s, I think China had looked at its defense industrial base and saw the same things that a lot of people like myself here in the United States saw, which was a, an industry that was built around very um, inefficient state-owned enterprises that you know were redundant. There was very little sort of competition or real incentives for innovation and risk-taking. And it began to change, uh, institute reforms around 2014 that were pretty ambitious. And, I, you know, they haven't gone quite as fast, I'm sure, as many in the state council or, or the PLA would have liked. But it has, I think, created some interesting developments in the in, in the in what constitutes China's defense industrial base. Because first and foremost, they've consolidated a couple of those big state-owned enterprises, particularly in the nuclear sector and in shipbuilding. Just last year, the two largest Chinese shipbuilders were consolidated into one monolithic sort of uh, state-owned enterprise. So um, that is, and then, then Kasich and Cask, two of these big aerospace companies that produce missiles and rockets and space assets, they weren't consolidated, but they've been sort of told to cooperate and to, to reduce some of the redundancy between the organizations. So there's starting to be a focus on efficiency and scale. And the other really interesting aspect is the integration of the private sector into China's defense industrial base, which has never really been the case. Uh, there wasn't a lot of trust of China's private sector defense industry because they never had an opportunity to contribute to any really significant missions outside of maybe training. So we've really seen that when it comes to some of these new technology areas like artificial intelligence and particularly unmanned systems. I just got back from Abu Dhabi where I was attending the unmanned uh, exhibition which is a really interesting place to go to a defense exhibition because there's so many different providers, including local providers, who are displaying things there. If you just go to USA, it's predominantly U.S. and European, but you get a real mix. And I was struck, uh, even though it's not a huge show, um, I was struck by the number of private Chinese companies that were displaying their uh, unmanned systems, uh, all from you know, kind of knockoffs of uh, the Black Hornet micro UAV to, to much more sophisticated equipment. There were also state-owned enterprises. So, so that's a really interesting development. And all of these areas that we think, or many of these areas where we think the future of military capabilities is going, China's private sector is starting to get engaged in a way that it hasn't been in the past. And that brings me kind of the third point on doing business, uh, how things are changing in China and what may be different fundamentally to how we do business here in the United States, which is this idea of military civilian fusion, which formally I think people refer to as civil military integration, but the idea that the technologies that are acquired or the know-how that's acquired through commercial interactions and development are diffused across now the whole economy, but certainly are diffused to the military sector and are able to be leveraged by the defense industrial base. And, you know, this is something that as it goes back to the 1980s as a policy and as a strategy, but it's really gained momentum again since about 2013, 2014, and now is a real priority area for China to be able to leverage all the investment that's going on in this private sector in unmanned systems and AI and other areas for military gain. And, and I think that's probably a challenge the United States has. It's not that there isn't incredible innovation going on in the United States. It's just how does the defense sector, how does the defense enterprise get access to that a little more easily? I think that's still a challenge that the U.S. defense industrial base and defense community is still struggling with. Yeah, one of the things that seems true about civil military integration to the extent is that if you actually get some of that going, you would have more kinds of experimentations going on, faster iterations. And one of the things that you said in a 2015 congressional testimony is that China, quote, relies on incremental development and prototype launch of technologies over full systems development. 
And you also said that multi-phase development programs are used to demonstrate and study technologies before deploying final systems. So can you talk a little bit about that incremental prototyping approach? I, I recently saw, I think it was on the drive, they had a picture of like 20, I want to say, you know, UAVs lined up on a Chinese um, airfield. And it's just like, you know, where's that kind of diversity in the U.S.? But can you just describe how was that incrementalist approach as opposed to like a waterfall teletic kind of approach used? Yeah, and it's a great, it's a really great question. And I think China's defense industrial base on these bigger programs focuses on these incremental prototyping. But one of the, uh, again, the, I mean, you, you referenced it, the 20 different um, unmanned systems models. I guess the two words that we've used and I've used in the past, they're volume and velocity to the innovation and sort of unmanned systems than I think than we had seen previously, certainly that I was referencing in that 2015 testimony. And it's just, you know, it's very aggressive. Let's get it out there. Let's, um, you know, uh, there was a period of time in which it was very difficult to keep up with all the different programs that the Chinese companies were coming up with. They were either in marketing phases or development or actually being deployed. And that's in the unmanned systems area. So I think I think there's, again, a move in, in some of these areas like unmanned systems and certainly um, artificial intelligence deployment to be a little bit more aggressive and risk tolerant than some of the bigger programs that uh, have relied on the incremental prototyping that you that you referenced earlier. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenge areas that the Chinese uh, military industry might be facing? Sure. I, I mean, we I think we touched on a couple of them, you know, when we talked about the reforms that the, the industry has typically not been one that where there's been a lot of competition. So there hasn't been a lot of incentive for, for innovation. There is also this lack of scale. If you look at the top defense contractors in the world that, you know, the top 10 list is going to be dominated by U.S. and European and maybe one Russian Although Chinese companies are moving up gradually up that list as exports grow and the, the money being spent within China uh, continues to grow. So there, all of those sort of structural challenges, I think, are being addressed, although, again, probably not quite as quickly as, as maybe the state council and PLA would have would like. You do see more sort of innovation capacity and things moving a little bit quicker, but I still think those are challenges. And, and, and we've also, I've also highlighted in the past things like systems integrations and standards and processes that are, uh, that are still building within the kind of state-owned defense industrial base and, and I think have been called out by individuals within the China's defense industrial base as being kind of real challenges that have been difficult to crack. And then, you know, impossible to talk about China's defense industrial base's challenges without at least mentioning aero engines, which has become kind of the, the standard example of a specific technology where all of those structural and, and specific kind of systems engineering challenges and standards and processes have conspired for 20 years or so to challenge, uh, to, to make it very difficult for China to indigenously develop its own advanced aero engines. So it has to import those, which I think it sees as a big strategic vulnerability, not just to its military aerospace programs, but also to its kind of burgeoning nascent commercial aerospace ambition. I wanted to get your reaction to something. I heard Palmer Lucky, who is the founder of Enduro, he said something to the effect of Chinese defense firms are actually younger on average than U.S. defense firms. There are actually a bunch of new ones that have come around in the past couple decades. I wasn't really sure about that. I kind of did a little bit of research my own. I found that of the eight Chinese defense firms with five billion in sales or more, five were kind of established within the last 21 years some of which are brand new, some most of which were kind of spun off. But what, what do you think about that youth 
factor is is there it, does it seem more dynamic in the abilities to get towards mid and upper scale in china's defense industry is there more churn there than in the u.s what's what's your general feeling you know, I, I, that's an area that I haven't done tons of research in, the sort of the demographics of the industry. But it's anecdotally that 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 does line up with some of the things that I've seen. And 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 again, if you just go back, we keep referencing 2013 and 2014. I mean, these were sort of watershed years for China's defense and security policy and some of the and its defense industrial base sort of sending it on a different trajectory. But I do think I've seen more dynamism in the industry over the last since that time. And it's building progressively. It's not necessarily a, a super steep curve, but some of that can be, I, I think, should be attributed to, to some of the changing demographics. So you led an excellent study on Chinese military technology. I think that was over at IHS, and we're definitely going to put a link up to that. Can you talk just a little bit about China's progress in some of the following areas? So we've already touched a little bit on autonomous systems, but can you go a little bit further there? What's China pushing on? What's new? What's working, not working? Yeah, um, on autonomous systems, there was the, <laughs> this big test of back again in 2017 by the China Electronics Technology Group Corporation, CETC, state-owned enterprise, of I think it was 119, a swarm of 119 networked unmanned aerial systems. And they got a lot of attention because at the time it was the biggest test ever, a uh, military uh, test ever. And we've since seen other data points like uh, in May of 2018, a private Chinese company tested a, a swarm of 56 unmanned surface vehicles, so maritime vehicles, which, by the way, formed the outline of the of China's first aircraft carrier. <laughs> That's They kind of swarmed to form that and also the Chinese characters for military-civilian fusion. So there was no doubt about what the intent of this display was. But what I've been struck by, and again was struck even last week or when I was when I was at this unmanned exhibition, was the number of other companies, private companies, that are advertising their capacity in swarming technology and autonomous systems. It's on the marketing brochures, right? You just go by the stands and pick the marketing brochures and there's the word swarm warm is written on the on the booths themselves. And I think that's really interesting that this seems to be just a, a focus area, not just of the state-owned enterprises, but is certainly at or near the top of the list for a lot of the private companies that are trying to operate in this space. And it could be a swarm of 10. I mean, there's this uh, video on YouTube of Xi'an, uh, which is a private Chinese unmanned systems company, and it's a blowfish uh, unmanned uh, UAV. And it, you know, there are 10 of these things that go off and do a strike mission against you know a theoretical opponent, national opponent. And uh, adversary. And, um, you know, this is just where the technology is headed right now. And I think there's a lot of development across the both the state-owned and private sector in that area. That's interesting on swarms. I think I saw recently there was an Israeli firm that demonstrated they could take out swarms of micro, so definitely just small UAVs, but it was an interesting demonstration. Yeah, well, and that's another, I mean, this is the uh, the competition. So this is where when you get these new technologies coming online and starting to be deployed, you get new competitions. And so the, the competition between autonomous systems and kind of this counter UAV technologies that still have some challenges to them, but are starting, I mean, you, you now have just about, I won't say every country, but a lot of countries are making their own counter UAV technologies, China included. So Saudi Arabia is developing its own counter UAV system and spam. I mean, there's just, it's a very competitive market. But yeah, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic, this interplay between the new capabilities that are coming online and then the things to counter them. So can we move on to uh, hypersonic missiles? What's happening there? 
<laughs> well, it feels like a lot. It feels like it's tough to go a week without hearing something about hypersonic missiles, either in China, Russia, or, or you know what the U.S. response should be. But I do know that this has been a, a, a pretty persistent concern for the past two to three years. One of these areas, uh, as with electronic warfare, hypersonic weapons, and hypersonic missiles, um, where I think the perception within the DOD is the U.S. took its foot off the pedal a little bit and allowed China to close the gap, and Russia too, with you know just spending huge sums of money on hypersonic missiles. And we saw at the um, parade back in the military parade in, in Beijing back on October 1, the display of the DF-17, so hypersonic glide vehicle, was on display. Now, this is not necessarily operational. I don't, it's not operational, but, but there is a lot of development uh, across the board in these types of missiles. And I think what makes it even more concerning is that they seem to be strategic, not just uh, conventional, that there's no indication that they would not be used for, um, you know, they wouldn't be, it wouldn't have nuclear warheads on them as well. In fact, there's ind very direct indications that they are part of China's strategic force. So, so yeah, this is an area that, again, in Russia should be part of this conversation too, um, because they, Putin has recently announced that the avant-garde weapon is now in service. And again, you can take all of this with a grain of salt, but it does it does show that there's a lot of progress going on outside of the United States and China, I think, is at the front of that, but Russia right behind. So how about the space domain? I think I heard Stephen Quast say something like China has basically hit every milestone on their space plan in the, over the last 30 years, and they're, they're looking for a lot more. So what's what's going on in space? A lot. And I, again, it's space and I would say probably counter space is worth talking about too. And we, we, the, the paper you referenced, the one written while I was at Chains uh, for the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission, had a really strong focus on counter space technologies. But, but you know, I, I think for the most part, that's true. China has hit it's just about every one of its milestones. It's had a couple of uh, failed launches along the way. But, but even one of those was the Long March 5. And actually at the end of 2019, China uh, successfully tested the Long March 5, the Y3, that it's the heavy lift launch vehicle, which is, uh, I think, a pretty big milestone given that it had previously failed a couple of years ago. And, and probably more, just as importantly as having the, the launch vehicle was the payloads, the experimental payloads that were being tested. And, and you know, the, some things we don't know about those payloads, but it did seem that they were pretty advanced and included, you know, kind of surveillance payloads as well. So I think there's a lot of momentum here. It's along with this recognition that space, cyber, electronic warfare are all central to the future conduct of military operations and being able to establish and maintain advantage in these domains is absolutely critical to what China is trying to do, particularly when you look at it from the perspective of an anti-access area denial strategy. If you can retain sort of dominance or superiority in space, then perhaps you can ensure that this military, this incredibly advanced U.S. military force can't be fully brought to bear in a conflict. So yeah, I see a lot of focus on space and counter space in China and a lot of progress there as well. In this last one, can you talk a little bit about shipbuilding? We heard that they're kind of dropping a lot of these ships in like dumplings, you know, how... Yeah. I think I've heard that there they might even be over 300 in the battle force today and yes. on their way to over 400 in five or 10 years. What, what's going on there? Yeah, it's just moving from this land-based, largely land-focused territorial defense force to a recognition that 
being able to uh, manage the seas, the maritime domain, initially within that first island chain and then beyond, is absolutely critical to China's national security interests and to competing, especially against the United States and its allies and partners. So it has invested a lot, building out a, a much more sophisticated Navy. And, and yes, the size of the Navy is, is increasing, but I think it's also a lot of replacement of older platforms with newer, more advanced ones. And you see if, you know, the, the types of ships that are coming, it's pretty much an increase in capability across all all categories of ships, but you also are seeing a focus on attack subs and nuclear subs as well to start to compete more effectively in the undersea domain, which would be an area that I think most U.S. military planners would say the U.S. has a, a an important, strategically important advantage. So it really has been impressive, and I, I recommend anyone interested in a lot more detail on this to to, to go look up Andrew Erickson in the uh, Naval War College and the Center for Maritime Studies Institute there. They do some incredible work on China's uh, shipbuilding program. Yeah, I think Erickson has a website, and he lists, he just has dozens of books or something like yeah, that yeah, all, on everything China. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. great resources there. Um, so I wanted to move on to supply chain security. And it seems like in the U.S., there's just been all these concerns about supply chain, especially like where does China come in on that supply chain and how do we, you know, get a better grasp around who's in the supply chain, who's out and assurance of of different parts. And that's leading to a lot of, you know, there's already regulations, potentially more will be coming. ITAR is especially one, the international traffic in arms regulations. So do you think like as we go forward, What's the risk that the U.S. actually kind of gets more alienated from its allies in the rest of the world than China? Or is is China actually pretty well integrated into the rest of the ecosystem? Or do you think, you know, the U.S. is is better integrated there? Well, from from a defense industry perspective, you know, the U.S. has a, a tricky challenge that, that China certainly doesn't. And that is there is a right, uh, I think, a very correct perspective on shoring up supply chain security doesn't necessarily mean you can't engage foreign companies, but at the same time, you just have to be more careful about how you do it. So that is an important priority. But if the United States still wants to participate as a as the global leader in defense exports, um, it's hard to do that in the environment today without engaging local suppliers and, and incorporating uh, the domestic defense industry in the countries that you're trading with into your supply chain. Uh, indeed, there are that's a sort of core component of the offset programs that many countries throughout the world, particularly in these emerging markets, in the Gulf and Asia Pacific and, and Eastern Europe, where there really is a lot of focus on bringing in uh, foreign suppliers to build up a local defense industry. So, so the U.S. is going to have to be able to establish uh, U.S. defense industry is going to have to be able to, to, to trade to, in order to win contracts in these areas. It's going to have to be able to work with the local industry. China doesn't have this problem. In fact, China is very aggressive in the way it engages local industry. There was this T-Lormids deal several, several years ago in Turkey where a Chinese supplier was selected ahead of Raytheon and Eurosam and the Russian uh, offering as well to provide integrated air defense systems to Turkey. Now, NATO got and said, you know, no way, we can't allow this. This is crazy. So the contract never came to fruition. But after the selection of the, of the Chinese company, the individual who ran the competition said, we, we did that because their cost was so much lower. And the advantages we got in tech transfer, local work share, co-development were so much more. And so China has been successful in building uh, a nascent uh, defense export business that does engage these industries. I mean, it's making uh, unmanned systems in Saudi Arabia with uh, Saudi Arabian companies. So I think there's this tension here that the U.S. providers have to be careful about. 
But in the end, as far as being alienated from its allies and partners, I don't think China is going to fill any, vo- you know, significantly fill a void with trade to NATO countries. Um, with some of these emerging markets, I think there will be some capability areas and where good enough is going to do it and China will have an advantage maybe in those types of competitions. But there will also be areas where there will be a real focus on quality. And at the end, um, those may be the areas where the U.S. can continue to provide you know, kind of best-in-class equipment in, say, missile defense, for example, and other really exquisite, strategically valuable technology. So I see this as an interesting area to watch, how U.S. companies are able to operate in a, a changed and changing defense export market. Uh, China has been pretty pretty nimble uh, in terms of willing to give away technology and, and, and incorporate companies into its supply chain a little bit. Uh, but but I you know I think it's a, a certainly a, an interesting area to watch. Yeah, that ability for China to be nimble actually kind of strikes me. You know, we often hear and people point to the fact that well, China has a kind of top-down coordinated strategy, and they're able to give get this great advantage kind of over coherence against the United States, where there's potentially competing perspectives and non-coercive policies. But it seems to me that the Department of Defense, at least, is actually quite top-down, right? And it alienates it from a lot of the more dynamic U.S. economy, whereas China seems to better be able to experiment, as we talked about earlier, across a you know diverse set of concepts and platforms, move quickly, get dollars moving you know, pretty quickly to companies that need it, and then be able to make strategic plays across a large number, right, across a huge ecosystem of, of technologies. So the question is really, you know, can China really be as top-down as people say if they're innovating so quickly? Or, you know, what is it that they're demonstrating, which is kind of like a market or mission command kind of aspect in some ways? Yeah, I think uh, I've always been fascinated by by this this question of, you know, does China gain an advantage by being able to basically tell its industry what to do <laughs> and then fund it and able to do it? Um this is this is a really interesting question, and I, I think there's a tendency sometimes to both uh, underplay the challenges that China has and uh, and overplay the ones that the United the United States has in its systems. But it, but it has been impressive the way that China has been able to develop a lot of new new systems. So I, I you know Kai Fu Lee, the he's a Taiwanese. Uh, I'm sure you know anyone who follows AI knows who Kai Fu Lee is. But he's been involved both in the China and U.S. AI development programs and now funds companies largely in China, I think elsewhere as well. Um, he talks about China having a techno-utilitarianism. That is the, the idea that it they just want to get everything out there as quickly as possible and it can either succeed or fail, but it just gets out there. Develop it, market it, get it out there, and that's predominantly in the commercial sector. But I think some of those principles have started to bleed into the development of some of these higher tech capabilities, uh, high tech enabled capabilities within, within the military. And I think that you do see that a little bit with the unmanned systems, which is where, again, we've talked about there's been enormous progress, both in terms of the capabilities it's deploying, it's developing, the China's companies are developing and deploying for China and its position in the export market. So so I think there's something to the idea that um, that China's top-down guidance is starting to drive some innovation in some of these high-tech areas. But but I do think there's still challenges to that model that we've seen in terms of the efficiency and the, and the defense industrial, the traditional state-owned uh, enterprise defense industrial base. 
for me, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily, I guess the question was, is China really as top down as we think it is? Because it seems like they're not just stealing IP, even though they are, but it seems like this ability to be dynamic, get things out quickly. They're actually kind of, you know, what you were saying there sounds a lot more like the VC mindset than the Department of Defense mindset, which is planned for many years. So I guess the question is, is like China more delegated down where it's like, you know, it's still high up, but it's not like through the whole bureaucracy that these decisions to just say, we're just going to go iterate on this design, see what works, and then, you know, drop the losers, keep the winners kind of thing. I mean, it's not like someone at the very tippy top is saying this design, yes, no, right? Right, right. No, no, that I, I don't think that is the case. I think I, I, th- I think that, that the ability to marshal that industry is where I think the top-down guidance to me probably plays the most important role in the innovation process, the ability to say, you know, maybe even lay out, here's some priority areas, go at it, but make sure that company, whatever the outputs are, then leveraged by the by the military. Again, that that process exists doesn't mean that it's perfectly efficient, right? right. But, but it does mean that there are level levers in, in place and conditions in place to enable that. So I, that to me is where I think some of the top-down stuff really comes into play. And, you know, China, you know, when you talk about AI in particular, the, the narrative has long been that China is behind the United States in the basic science and tech aspect, but it's ahead of the United States in its ability to get applications out. And I think that that, again, that mentality and that approach is starting to to bleed into other uh, capability areas which have military relevance. So, you know, the United States struggles, as we've talked about earlier, in aligning the high-tech industry to support the defense enterprise, although there are some, you know, that's now a focus area, so there's hopefully that will change. But again, I think that's one area where China has, has a system that maybe enables it to access those technologies a little bit easier. It's hard to imagine Alibaba walking away from a, def- a PLA program. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's nice to hear, at least recently, that you had, you know, like the Amazons and the Microsoft kind of rallying behind the Department of Defense. It is. But yeah, it's great. Yeah. And we need more of that. But it seems like, you know, some of that's on the government making itself an attractive buyer and all of that. So you've also written, you know, you've written an interesting article recently at the um, Atlanta Council Uh, talking about procurement. So in order to improve military innovation, kind of get some of that ability to just get things out that that China's got going, you know, what kind of procurement reforms do you think are needed in the U.S., but potentially not getting the kinds of um, attention that they should? Yeah, sure. I'm I'm with you. We wrote a paper recently with Stephen Rodriguez at the Atlantic Council on uh, AI strategy for, for national security. And, and one of the big priorities we looked at was the U.S. government becoming a better customer. And, and I think, you know, the, the types of things that need to happen, you know, make it easier and, and more, more profitable, frankly, to deal with the U.S. government, allow the U.S. government maybe to move more quickly on, on things like software, which seems to be a very difficult area for the U.S. for the DOD to procure. Yeah, I, I just think things like that. And also telling the story, um, because I, I, you're right, the, the high-tech industry is begin, um, Amazon, Microsoft are much more openly uh, behind uh, DOD priorities. Google is taking a, a different approach now. But telling the story that there are a lot of ways for high-tech companies to get engaged with DOD without ever having to worry, uh, in many cases, about missiles or kinetic <laughs> force, right? I or mean, the cost accounting the, standards. Or the cost <laughs> accounting standards, right, which is even, so both from a customer standpoint 
standpoint and from a more a moral and ethical standpoint, there are lots of avenues for uh, for DOD engagement with with high tech industry and vice versa. So, so yeah, I, I just think you know telling the story and 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 reducing the the burden on some of these companies that have no experience whatsoever working with the U.S. government or facilitating contact with companies that can help them in that process. Um, but but the end result here is to speed it up, is to speed up the procurement of these different capabilities. Are you kind of approving of the uh, innovation hubs that have been going on and some of the new talk that's been happening in the past couple of years, or do you think there's something to add? I'm approving of the concepts. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll produce outputs, right? And that's that's the big challenge is that you have an innovation hub and there's a lot of talk around it. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily what's happening or singling anyone out, but just saying that can be a tendency uh, to create these these centers of gravity and in institutions. Um, but going from great ideas to producing the actual results can be uh, challenging. So, yeah, conceptually, that's great. But let's let's figure out ways to make sure that those efforts produce results. Yeah, so you brought up already that um, article you did on national security strategy for artificial intelligence with our mutual friend Stephen Rodriguez. I'd recommend people read that. It had a nice forward from Ash Carter. So can you just go over a little bit, you know, what were you guys trying to add to the conversation there? We felt that there was just an absolute deficit in the amount of uh, pages and ink being spilled on artificial intelligence. No, just kidding. No, clearly, there's a lot of great stuff being written, and that, that uh, and we thought that we could contribute and advance that conversation in a few different ways. One way was to take kind of a broad perspective on national security. Look, not just in terms of the military applications of artificial intelligence, but also understand how it is affecting kind of the competition in the information domain sort of sub-threshold stuff. And then third, look at the values question, right? So can U.S. national security objectives and principles and values uh, exist, much less prosper in a world in which authoritarian uh, regimes are not just instituting uh, AI for their own preservation, but also exporting it to other countries. So so taking that broad approach, I think, helped further the conversation. And I'm not sure that all of the, the literature that's out there now took that approach. I think we also tried very hard to lay out a framework to say, look, this is why that broad approach is so important, is because there are these four fusions of the physical and digital world, of the states of peace and conflict, of perception and reality, and of uh, security and commercial priorities that have created conditions in which AI can AI enabled capabilities can be particularly disruptive, as we've already started to see in terms of some of the AI enabled disinformation campaigns that are already going on. And then I would I would also add we draw some pretty strong distinctions between technology and capability, which I think sometimes gets lost in the discussion of artificial intelligence. It's just this thing that you know. But we try and say that okay, AI is technology, but there are all these other innovations that are required, like procurement, for example, to go from that technology to creating a real capability. And last, but but I don't think least, and probably most importantly, we, we laid out, I think, a comprehensive strategy and not just a series of kind of recommendations, no matter how linked or connected. We built around, you know, kind of five action verbs of uh, direct, engage, govern, protect, and compete, and, and tried to link the recommendations across those five areas. So it felt more like a, a strategy than, again, a list. So yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a lot of fun to do and um, grateful that it's now out. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I hope that people pick it up and, and take a look. Great. Are there any DoD programs that you're watching right now that might seem exceptionally promising or disastrous or otherwise? What are, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at a few, uh, but one that I've been really interested in is the future vertical lift. Um, 
in particularly the the FARA program, the, the, the class one capability, because it's taken a really interesting and unique approach. Um, you know, it started off with these OTAs and mid-tier procurement exceptions that allowed the program to move very, very quickly. And, and actually, we're coming up against another milestone here in the month of March, uh, where the the five competitors will be down-selected to two, to two and, and then move forward to a prototype and then eventually, a you know, kind of a standard contract. But the but the use of the OTAs there, again, one of the tools that we, we recommend in, our, in the paper and in the article that you referenced could be really helpful in speeding up the defense procurement process, you know, applying it here to you know a, a very big very expensive program to get the prototypes out there uh, has been really interesting to me and I've been impressed and it adds a little flexibility as well to not be overly prescriptive in the requirements actually I just say we, we need this uh, platform to do these things um, how you do it is up to you and I think I think those between the OTA and not being overly prescriptive it's seemed to me like that's been an interesting approach for uh, for that procurement. Yeah, you've written a nice article about that in Defense News, and we'll put that up. But, you know, usually we'll, we always hear, you know, if you want to get this new capability, it's just going to cost you a lot more, right? Like the first V-22 cost right. a good amount more than, than the legacy Chinooks that they were actually supposed to replace. But right. You've, right. you've written something here at the very end. I'm just going to quote this. Quote, the report's conclusion is an encouraging sign that the Army can focus, as it should, on acquiring a truly leap-ahead system that does not have to make fundamental compromises between cost and capability. And so I'm with you. I think that's an interesting uh, case here of using kind of like, I don't know what they kind of seem to be calling like the holy grail, if you can use the middle-tier authorities to kind of get around some of the requirements in 5,000 series process and then use the OTAs for the contracting process. You can really kind of actually get those new technologies you know, accelerate those timelines and then not have to pay for it with higher cost necessarily. So you can kind of get the best of all worlds. Yeah. And in that report that was referenced in there was a CSIS report on uh, on the future vertical lift program and whether or not the Army could afford both the FARA and then the future long range attack aircraft uh, simultaneously. And, and they came and said, yes, but you have to watch Sustainment costs. Okay, that, that, that that's probably a better message than <laughs> you know this is going to break the bank just to procure both of these. So so yeah, I agree. I think you know there's there's a there's a method here, and that's one of the reasons why I locked onto this program was that it seemed to be trying something uh, new and it seemed to be succeeding. Yeah, maybe it's a good example for for other programs. I just want to pull this thread a little bit and just get your reaction because we've been talking about China just throwing out a bunch of programs and kind of seeing what's working and not. Whereas in the U.S., it seems like you know, and it kind of goes to what you were just saying there. We kind of look at the whole program and then just kind of expect out the cost to completion, what we expect the operating and support costs will be. And then when we put that all together in a portfolio, we're like, oh, can't afford that. There's no way we can do, you know, two different programs that are competing and, and then see, and that will help drive costs down. That's just not the most likely thing that we've seen from the past. So we kind of have to narrow our focus down onto one program or whatever it might be. What do you what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, there's elements of truth to it for sure, and uh, I guess I'd I'd say that um, you know it's always it's always tough in these conversations because I don't want to minimize cost. <laughs> like that's right. that is important. We're taxpayers. That's taxpayer money. You know, there are lots of priorities the government has to deal with, both within DoD and outside. But it does sometimes. I think you're right. I think you know we we get caught up in these discussions and and it slows us down. 
big time. And I think one of the things that we tried to highlight with the with the future vertical lift program is that you know these platforms are going to be in service for 40 or 50 years, right? And so by the time they come into service at the end of this decade, I think 2028 to 2030 is the objectives. You know, the operational environment will have changed from what it is today, and it will no doubt change between 2030 and 2070. So building in the flexibility to to sustain the capability, but also adapt it and be agile while also not overrunning those costs seems to me to be a really important conversation that sometimes gets lost, uh, as you mentioned, in these upfront conversations about the you know, focusing on the immediate budget priorities. So do you have any final thoughts, whether that's on China's military procurement or the U.S.? You know, I would say um, about China, I, I, first of all, the main final thought is thanks for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope it's been a, I mean, it's been a really interesting conversation for me. Um, I always try and kind of conclude conversations on China by just pointing out that, you know, China has its challenges too. It, it's not 10 feet tall and, and bulletproof, but it is doing things differently. And so the need to think a little bit, to, to get out of some of the assumptions, which I think is happening, frankly, uh, over the last couple of years about China and innovation – uh, about what China is trying to achieve, I think you know, kind of regularly reevaluating those assumptions is important, but also not losing sight that great power competition requires us to optimize the resources that we have, and so finding finding the areas where we need to invest, and I think we've talked about a few of them here, in order to to take this incredible innovation system we have here in the United States, that maybe we haven't focused on from a defense perspective quite as intensely over the last decade. And uh, and bringing that to bear, you know, I think there's some there's some easy wins and there's some longer term wins. But um, keeping in mind that you know, we've let China close the gap, but we still have an opportunity to sustain advantage if we're if we're focused on these things. Uh, I think that's kind of my main takeaway. Tate Nurkin, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. And absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.